0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I am live today with Terry Fakes. We are coming on a topic that is off the beaten path from our biblical books, but I think as you introduce it, it's going to make sense of a lot of what we do in the biblical books, and that is the roles of prophet, priest, and king. That's exactly right. You spoke
1: at a men's retreat that we had Recently, And due to popular request, since it was not recorded, we've been asked to talk about these concepts. And obviously, some of the application at the retreat was pretty heavily focused toward the men. But the fundamental idea of prophet, priest and king runs through from literally the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. And the way you talked about it was in a very broad, connected way, using the archetype of Adam as a prophet, priest, and king, foreshadowing Jesus as the prophet, priest, and king. And I don't know if many people think about Adam in that way. So maybe kick it over to you and say, in what sense is
0: Adam a king or a priest or a prophet? Yeah, so the impetus for this talk basically came from um, thinking through some of the cultural trends that we have going on right now, which is uh, one of the things that's been on my mind for the last several years is you, you have this resurgence or you have a big swell in men's speakers, blogs, podcasts, particularly led by non-Christians that are close to Christianity in some ways. So people like Jordan Peterson would be in that group and then in kind of a different camp, but even more popular would be somebody like Joe Rogan. And the question that I've asked, and I've actually sat with groups of pastors asking this question is, so what is it that Jordan Peterson knows that we don't know? Because one of the least churched group of people in the country is young men, men in their twenties and early thirties. Right. And that's 80% of his audience. And it's not just that they are following him. They will sit and listen to three-hour lectures and interviews from these guys and follow everything they're doing. And yet, we feel like we're missing something in the church. And so I thought for a long time, and I wrote on this a couple of years ago about what Jordan Peter gets right and wrong, Jordan Peterson gets right and wrong. uh, But I I think one of the, the keys to their appeal is that they're doing something that the Bible actually does that modern sermons and teaching sometimes overlooks, which is biblical archetypes. So that would be big, big themes or big caricatures almost that run through scripture about what you were created for. So if you read Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for life or 12 more rules for life, one of the things you'll notice is he is not afraid to tell you what you are for, what you were made to do. what's going to line up with your ambitions and your drive. Right. And one of the ways that he does that is he uses these archetypes that he thinks are at the heart of every man and really every person, but it really resonates for him with men. You are for danger you are for risk. You are for finding a heavy load and standing up underneath it. Okay. This is not original to him. This is as old as time. These archetypes, you slay the dragon, get the girl is probably the oldest archetype. And that is a biblical archetype. And the theologians throughout church history have used these three prophet, priest, and king to talk about what Christ is like, what Adam is like, And because of that, because we are in Adam, and then we are in Christ, if you're trusting in him, we are also like that. So we have these archetypes that actually are written into who we are, created by God. And so what I want to talk about is, if you know how Adam was created, then you know what you're for. And if you know what Jesus came to do, then you know what you've been recreated to do. And so every person finds themselves somewhere in between the fallen prophet, priest, and king of Adam, and the perfect prophet, priest, and king, Jesus. So let's just kick around these types because they're everywhere in the Bible. So if we start with king, king is probably the easiest one for us to understand because we're familiar with it and because it's really overt in Scripture. Kings basically exist to expand the kingdom of God everywhere. And if you go back to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, when God creates Adam and Eve, In chapter one, verse 26, God says, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens and everything that moves on the earth. So God creates Adam and Eve, and he gives them a creation mandate is what you see a lot of times this passage referred Mm -hmm. to of dominion. Now, dominion is kind of a buzzword for us because dominion, dominate are the same kind of root word. and, And especially as sensitive as we are right now to power dynamics in our society, dominion is not always a good word. So you have to be kind of specific about what type of dominion Adam is supposed to be exercising. And there's two kinds of kings in the Bible. There are kings who bring glory to God, and there are kings who bring glory to themselves. And pretty quickly after the fall, so Adam and Eve sin, they are kicked out of the garden. Their sons, Cain and Abel, Cain slays Abel. Cain goes off, builds a city, names it after his own son. His name is Enoch. And so the first city that we have in the Bible's name is Enoch. Well, Cain is building a city for his own glory. That's why he names it after his son so that his Mm -hmm. line will be prolonged. This is one of the most innate sinful desires is to build a kingdom for ourselves. And sure enough, after him, it just gets worse and worse and worse. You have Nimrod, unfortunately named who (laughs) is kind of a proto King ruler, mighty man. Some people think that he's based, he's the same person that the Epic of Gilgamesh is written about. I mean, he's a, he is a regional ruler The Bible says he's a mighty man before the Lord, and he starts building cities everywhere. And if you go to Genesis chapter 10, you see that a lot of these places are the places that will end up being enemies of Israel later on. And the story of the Tower of Babel, this is a little bit difficult to see if you don't know what you're looking for in the account of Genesis 10 and 11. He goes to the plain of Shinar, where he builds the city of Babel. Babel is the same word for Babylon. So he begins to build Babylon, and in chapter 10, it lists all these cities that he builds. And then in chapter 11, it comes back and almost zooms in on one of these cities, and is going to tell you the detailed story about what was going on there. So if if you're reading Genesis, you realize, okay, chapter 11 is a recap, but it's a detailed version of what chapter 10 said about Nimrod's kingdom. So the way I like to describe this, although maybe I should kick it over to you, is like an inset on a map. Does that does that resonate with you all at all, if I say that? It's a vaguely familiar idea to me, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you have this little inset that shows you what it was like for a king like that to be the worldly version of the king archetype. He builds a city so that they can go up to the heavens because they should be gods. They have this new technology. There's nothing that they can't do. So they go up to heaven to become gods and God scatters them across the face of the earth. This is one of the great examples of fallen kingship, is they don't want to expand the kingdom of God. They want to expand the kingdom of self.
1: Well, summarizing that a little bit, what I think is really interesting in that is back in chapter one, you read the passage where God created them to have dominion over the earth and all the creatures on the earth, and that's kingly language. Uh, the idea of having dominion. Obviously, God is the creator and everything belongs to him, but you see there that Adam is being given uh, kingly authority over it. And then, as you said, in chapter two, you get a little more idea of how should he exercise this dominion. In chapter two, you get the uh, command to God put the man in the garden to tend it, and keep it. And so you see this nurturing kind of dominion. And so that's what Adam was called to, to be a king who nurtures the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And you just talked about how fallen humanity and Adam's progeny still retain the idea of dominion, the kingly status, but instead they began to build kingdoms to themselves. And which is this what you mean when you say that Adam
0: is uh a fallen king or he is an imperfect king mm-hmm. yeah any sinful king is battling with the desire to cultivate things for their own glory so dominion in genesis cultivation is a good thing in and of itself but it, it depends on what you're building something for so it, for example it's not an accident that the bible begins in a garden and it ends in a city this this is the plan whether whether adam and eve had fallen or not The plan was to take what was going on in the garden, the worship of God and the cultivation of the earth that he had made and extend it all over the face of the earth. So you even see this in the creation account. So after six days, God creates. And then at the end of the sixth day, he says, "Okay, I've given you all the plants you need, all the animals, birds of the air, everything. It's good. And then God rests on the seventh day. And the implication there in the text is he's resting and Adam is cultivating. He's doing what God had been doing on the first six days as a sub creator. And the easiest way to see this is that Adam names all the animals. This is a kingly thing to do, whatever he calls them. So they were called. He's bringing order out of chaos. He is showing his dominion over them. He is giving meaning by assigning these names. He is taking what God started and the things that God furnished, and then he is extending them. This is the role that every person has, whether it's your skills and talents, whether it's in your family or at work, but taking the things that God has made and cultivating them for his glory is a kingly thing to do. Are
1: you saying then that as legacy and descendants of Adam, that we are kings and queens, if you will, in the sense that we too have been given this drive and desire for dominion. In other words, to exercise the uh, God-given creation that we are to
0: extend and expand and
1: tend the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, in that sense, we are we are all kings and queens, which, which sounds kind of backwards because you you think of well there can only really be one king and one queen and and that's true enough in the sense that jesus is the king of kings and the lord of lords and it is his kingdom and his kingdom will never end but one of the ways that we were created you can see this in a place like psalm 8 that talks about man created a little bit lower than the angels but destined for dominion right and crowned with glory this is kingly language that human humanity men and women are created to reign with Christ. So in 1 Corinthians 6, for example, Paul says, don't you know that you're going to judge the angels? Don't you know that you're going to reign with Christ over the new creation? So this was the plan for Adam, was that he would be this kind of king. And then when he falls, what it takes is uh, a savior who comes and dies to redeem people, to bring them to God, and to bring them back to this dominion status, to cultivate things um, for God's own glory and his own purposes. Now, let me add something here about uh, Adam. One of the things that he's doing in the Garden of Eden is ruling in God's place or in God's line of authority. And this is interesting because it's we, we, we know this because he is in the image of God. And this is a topic that sometimes gets really confusing is what does it actually mean to be in the image of God? And I think the way this is talked about most right now in our culture is being in the image of God means you have personal dignity. This is really important for all kinds of ethics and social ethics. It's a huge factor in the abortion conversations that we have. Christians believe that every human being has dignity because they're made in the image of God. And when we talk about it that way, it's almost like a picture of God in every person. There's another sense that the image of God is used in the ancient world, and I think this is one not to forget, in the ancient world, an image of a king meant a picture or a statue or representation of the king that basically said to everyone, even though the king is not here, he is reigning here. So you might have a town that's a long way from the capital city and they have a big statue or an image of the king or the ruler. And what that means is the king rules here. This image guarantees that this king right. rules here.
1: It stakes out the territory. Really, and like uh, money in the ancient world was that way, the kings would stamp their image on the coins, basically declaring their sovereignty over commerce in general and everywhere that, that those coins went. I guess that's what's behind when uh, Jesus was asked. Uh, whether we should pay the taxes. And he said, whose image is on the coin, then give to Caesar the things he's claiming that are his and give to God the things he's, that God is claiming are his. Right. You see this idea of dominion. Um, You know, one other thought as I talk about that is, so in how do you ask the Kings that came after Adam, what makes the difference in the old Testament
0: and so forth, a good King and a bad King. Well, an easy way to see the distinction is if you look at the list of kings in a place like First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles. How does the Bible evaluate kings? And this is pretty clear. They're evaluated by their spiritual impact. They're evaluated by whether or not they follow God, whether or not they lead the people to serve and worship God. And the interesting thing is, you have kings like Ahab is a good example who was actually a pretty savvy geopolitical king. He actually did some really good things for the kingdom of Israel, but he was judged in the Bible to be a very bad king. That's a great point. So one of the other ways that we see this in the Bible is through Jesus' own role as a king. So we understand, especially because of the story of the triumphal entry that Jesus is a king. We, he's called a king. Well, what are the things that we see him doing as a king? Well, one of the easy things is the Great Commission. So, if you look at the end of Matthew, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. This is a really kingly decree. I've been given authority, go expand the kingdom teach people to obey the rules of the kingdom, bring them in through baptism into the kingdom, make disciples, make citizens of the kingdom. And this, this is kind of a shorthand for things that he says in the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom of, and all the parables that are the kingdom of God is like we're supposed right. to go and expand the kingdom across the earth. Yeah. Basically you, if you
1: think about it in this way and hearken back to Genesis one, this is what Adam was told to do in the spiritual sense, is to go reclaim humanity, reclaim creation for God right from its fallen condition. That makes
0: right. perfect sense. And the application for us is pretty easy from there. I mean, by making disciples and by doing the work of the Great Commission, that is kingly work. To put it a little more specifically, I think one of the things where we go wrong sometimes with this is we think that the our jobs, our secular jobs, are only good insofar as we basically convert people at work. And, and that is right. important. I think there's a lot of opportunities to share the gospel at work. And I think that's something we should always be paying attention to. But evangelism is not the total extent of the kingly call to cultivate the earth. Just being good at your job, just bringing... <laughs> you know, whether it's technology or business or um, any kind of vocation you find yourself in, becoming good at that, taking the resources of the earth, doing something that uh, brings God glory, even indirectly, is something that falls under this kingly mandate. So just being a hard worker, being a person who values um, skill and excellence, being a person who is known at work for being honest, and somebody who gets the job done. All these things are kingly kinds of work.
1: Yeah. Everything that you're doing, wherever you go, in a sense, you're, you are an outpost, if you will, of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And so in every act, I like that because it's more holistic view of who we are and what we do and what we're for. Because sometimes right. it's easy to think our jobs are to make money so that we can give to the church and expand the kingdom. Right. And you know that's a good thing, but it's not that's not the main thing. The main thing is we are taking the kingdom wherever we go. We are an outpost of God's dominion in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, what about, uh, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me. You see the, the dominion language with Adam and you see the kingly language with Jesus. And it's a short putt to start thinking differently about ourselves as we too are engaged in the business of bringing glory to God by expanding his kingdom and not like Adam's descendants, building our own kingdoms to bring glory to ourselves.
0: But in what sense is Adam a priest? The priest is a little bit more difficult to conceive of because we are we are um, mostly attuned to priestly language in the book of Leviticus and in the book of Exodus. But if you go back to what Adam is supposed to actually do in the garden, it becomes pretty obvious that Adam is a priest in a temple. So let's, I want to come at this from two directions. The first one will be, what is the garden of Eden? And this is where you need to read carefully and get a sense of what's going on here geographically in the garden. So first and foremost, uh, Adam is placed in the garden. So it says that God in the land of Eden plants a garden. The garden of eden so there's actually a bigger area of eden and then inside that area is the garden of eden And this is in genesis 2 verse 8 and the lord god planted a garden in eden in the east and there he put man whom he had formed and out of the ground the lord god made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food the tree of life is in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil a river flows out of eden to water the garden So once we get into this, we see the water's running down, it's running to the east. We realize that Eden itself is at the top of a mountain. And this is true all over the Bible. God meets with people on the top of the mountain. As you move down the mountain, things get less holy. You have Mount Sinai that this is the case with. You have the mountain of God and the prophets. You have the temple, which is on the top of a mountain. And uh, you also have this concept of an inner holy of holies, an outer holy place, And then an even further out spot for the nations or for the Gentiles. So again, this is how the temple is arranged. This is how the tabernacle is arranged. This is how the Garden of Eden is arranged. And this is how the human heart is arranged eventually in the new covenant. Your heart is the new Holy of Holies. God is there. He is dwelling in us through spirit. And he's coming out from the Holy of Holies into our lives and into the surrounding world. Well, in the beginning, God is at the top of the mountain. That's the dwelling place of God. It's the Holy of Holies. And the Garden of Eden is what we would consider kind of the outer court of the temple, where Adam is tending to and cultivating. This is priestly language. We see this language all over the place in in the Torah. He is tending to and guarding and keeping the garden, the entrance to where God dwells. And God is actually coming out of the holy place into the garden, walking back and forth with Adam and Eve, and they're in his presence. Well, when Adam and Eve sin, they are kicked out of the garden because they are not allowed to be in God's presence and be sinful. And one of the key points here is when they sin, the first thing they do is hide from God and they cover themselves and God pushes them out to the east and the entire story of the bible after that if you want to make it you know paint with a really broad brush is who can get back into the garden who can get back yep. into the presence of God well it turns out only a perfect sacrifice can get you back into the presence of God and so Jesus is not just the sacrifice the book of hebrews tells us he is also the perfect high priest so he's the only one that can actually go in there and he's the only one that can be offered as a sacrifice So he, as a priest, offers himself as the final sacrifice for believers. And so that's a re-entrance into God's presence. So before Adam and Eve are removed, Adam is a a priest in a proto-temple, in this garden temple. And he's tending to the things of God. That's what the priest actually does, is he tends to and curates the things of God. And so this explains what you see priests doing in the book of Leviticus. They are tending to... And curating the things of God, they're handling the holy things, they're preparing the sacrifices, they are preparing the tent of meeting, they are preparing the temple later on, they are the people who handle holy things. And that role actually hasn't gone away. Now we don't believe that we need to make sacrifices anymore, we don't need to have temples made with human hands anymore. But we still tend to holy things we still curate the things of god in order for people to experience god and that is priestly work jesus did that adam did that we also have a role in doing that you know that's a really different way to think about a priest but
1: very enlightening to me because the priests the more i think about it the priests in the old testament lit the menorah the priests Prepared the showbread. They prepared the basin so that worship. They 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 handled the holy things so that God's people could meet with God, could encounter God, and Mm -hmm. you see that very similarly even in clergy today. And in an odd way, is that if you think this is kind of a crude example, but if you think about going to church to worship God on a Sunday morning, the what do the clergy tend to do? They prepare the environment. Uh, I won't call them the holy things, but they take the holy guitar and they tune up the holy drums, you know. But in other words, they basically prepare the environment so that God's people can encounter God. And that's an interesting way to think about priestly functions. And it makes it very applicable to us. For example, I think about it as a a father or uh, mother, you're doing that in your family effectively.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, one of the things that, that applies really easily is what are you doing to help other people in your life, whether it's your kids, whether it's a small group that you lead, whether it's just the people around you encounter God, you know, what are, what are the things that you're preparing and what's the environment that you're creating that helps people to encounter God? And of course, the easiest example was on this men's retreat on this trip is with fly fishing. I mean, fly fishing is one of those things that takes an enormous amount of time to get ready to do. You know, you spend 30 minutes or so just getting waders on and rigs set up and doing all that. And so you have these guides, you know, and we had some excellent guides on our trip that can get everything ready. And then they take you down to the water, but they're not the ones fishing. They're just standing there. They've gotten everything ready. And now it's your turn to actually fish. And uh, it just made me thankful for those guys that spent their time doing that. But it reminded me that that is priestly work. The priestly work of fly fishing, we might say, is basically getting everything ready and then allowing somebody else to stand in that spot and experience God. And so it's not not like we have a savior complex or something. It's not like you're dying for that person or forgiving their sins. It's that you're tending to and curating the environment with the intent that God is going to use those things to reach people. And he's going to use those things for people to have an encounter with him. All of that is priestly kind of activity. And I think it's something that we should think about is what what are we doing to essentially create environments for people to experience God?
1: Yeah, setting the stage. And it's easy to think about that as a parent, how to set the stage and set the tone for your children. But that's a good challenge. What are we doing for those around us? How do we... Tend to the holy things of God so that they can enter into the presence of God. Mm-hmm. So in what sense then, you know, we talked about Adam being an archetype of of Christ. You talked about Christ being the perfect priest because he is the only one that can enter the garden. There's no coincidence, by the way, that at the end of the book of Revelation, you see in Revelation 20 and 21 a description of a new Garden. It, I mean, the description sounds so much like the Garden of Eden, but it also sounds like a city as mm-hmm. well, the New Jerusalem. Right. Christ, Christ has led us back to the garden, if you will.
0: Yes, he, he's led us back to a cultivated garden. So, for example, the tree of life in the Garden of Eden is a tree, as far as we know. And in the book of Revelation, it is a family of trees that's growing on both sides of the waters of life. It is bearing fruit. The leaves are healing the nations. Of course, you have walls and precious gems that have been mined and put together. And so it's a cultivated city. And so the work of cultivation like we talked about for the kings is being done through history. Jesus is the way back into that. Uh, He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the door. You can't get in there if you don't go in through Christ. And so that, that, again, is a very priestly thing. So think about, you know, the the priests are supposed to go in, and behind the big curtain is the Holy of Holies. And the high priest gets to go in there one time of year. Nobody else can go in there. And what Jesus did is he went into the Holy of Holies. He offered himself as a sacrifice. And when he did, the curtain split. And now the presence of God is loose and God is entering back out through the Holy of Holies out with his people. Again, like we talked about the, the way that we conceive of that now is we are indwelled by the Holy spirit. So the spirit is dwelling in us. We are the new Holy of Holies. We are the new temple. And so God's presence is coming out from us. Uh, you know, Jesus says in John, which we talked about two weeks ago that if anyone believes in him, a spring of living water, will pour out of him. That's in John chapter four. Well, that that's this kind of language of priests tending to the place of God and God coming out to be with his people again. Now it's coming out of us and the spring of living water that comes out of us is the Holy Spirit. You know, that's, I, I think this is a really good topic because it's not how we
1: typically think of ourselves. We do know that like Romans 8, 28, uh, a portion of that says that we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of, of Jesus Christ. But this is an interesting way to think about how we're being transformed into the image of Christ using this model of a king, uh, the righteous, the true and righteous king and the priest you know the idea of being a priest like Jesus is a priest but maybe one of the hardest things to to uh, kind of break our mindset on is the idea of a prophet and so if you think about the traditional definition of a prophet like someone that tells the future or someone that gives sermons in the old testament what is in what sense is adam a prophet
0: the prophet is the hardest because we uh, like you said we have some conceptions of what prophets do but we're not always clear on what prophets are. What is the core of being a prophet? So for example, being able to tell the future is something that prophets do in the Bible, but it's a byproduct of what it means to be a prophet. So, you know, being a prophet is standing in the presence of God, being a member of the divine council. So if we take that as our basic definition, that a prophet is actually someone who is positionally, standing before God. The rest of the things that we think about with prophecy, whether that be the prophetic gifts or spiritual gifts or telling the future, really speaking truth to power is probably the the next best definition of what a prophet is doing. Bringing the word of the Lord from the presence of the Lord is what you see prophets doing. This is something we actually see all the way back in Genesis. So if you go to Genesis chapter two, and you think about the way that God creates Adam. There's something really instructive here about how we were made to live. So God gets down, forms dirt into the shape of a man, and then he breathes his breath into Adam's lungs. And this is the life that goes into Adam. And so you have to picture the scene here that God is face to face. He is right in front of Adam in order to blow his breath into Adam's lungs. And so Adam was created to be face to face with God. But the second thing that's interesting about this is, so if that's the case, God breathes his breath and breath and spirit are the same word in Hebrew. And so you get kind of a play, an intentional play on words here that God's breath or his spirit is breathed into Adam. Well, then if that's the case, what would be the first exhale that Adam has? Will it be the breath of God? This is the same breath that created the universe. And this is his spirit that was hovering over the waters that's now been breathed into Adam. And so when Adam exhales for the first time, he is exhaling the breath of God. And so we could take that almost metaphorically as what a prophet is doing is they are face to face with God so close that what they breathe out or what they speak out is God's very word. And sure enough, when, when you get to the part where Adam sins, Adam and Eve sin, this is exactly the sin. Adam was made to be in the presence of God, speaking the word of God. When Eve sins, what Adam should have been doing was because he was living in the presence of God, he should have been speaking the word of God, but instead he remained silent. And the same thing for Eve. She, she, she really misstates what God said. And because of that, she does something other than what God had told them to do. She should have been speaking the words of God in the encounter she has with the serpent. Think about this. Jesus does the exact same thing when he has an encounter with the serpent. What does he do? Well, when he's tempted, he he quotes quotes scripture. scripture too, by the way, sorry to interrupt, but this, you know, it seems so
1: obvious. You talked about this earlier, but Adam and Eve are naked and they're not ashamed. And they walk with God in the garden. And so they're, quote, positionally, they literally are living in the presence of God. And then once sin enters, they cover themselves and they hide. And they're no longer transparent with God. They're no longer living in the presence of God.
0: Right. This is really significant. At the end of chapter two, the way it describes Adam and Eve is naked and unashamed. And then when they sin, they're ashamed. And you have to ask yourself, who are they ashamed of? I think we typically think they're ashamed of each other, being exposed to each other, but they're they're really there could be a part of that, but they're really not as much afraid of each other because they're hiding together. <laughs> they're right. really afraid of God. They're afraid of being exposed before God. And so the what sin does is is, is it effectively changes our desire from being before God face to face with God exposed before him and not ashamed, intimate before him and not ashamed, to now running away from God and being afraid of God and hiding from God. That's our natural condition in sin is to hide from God, to hide ourselves, hide our sin, hide our insecurities from him. And so being restored in Christ means that it's the long process of basically being intimate with God again, being face to face with him, him seeing us as we are, him looking upon us as we are, and at the same time, being confident in what Christ has done. And the only way to do that is not on our own. It's through Christ's death and, and taking on his righteous life. So, you know, one of, the, one of the pictures of this is just so powerful is Martin Luther's great exchange. We take his clean, righteous garments and we put them on and we take our soiled garments and take them off and give them to him. And now God sees us with Christ's perfection. That's the only way to be restored into God's presence again. It's the only way to be whole in the sight of God. So the life of a prophet is something that every believer can live in, which is being before God every day, being before his face, spending time in his presence. And I just want to note that it's, it's possible to do your quiet time every day and never actually be in the presence of God. The point of reading the Bible in the morning, the point of praying is to get in God's presence. And these are God's inspired words that we read and, uh, you know, prayer is something that we're commanded to do. But all of that is to actually get us back before the face of God. And so we have to be really intentional that our time doesn't become going through the motions or uh, we don't fall back Back. into the tendency to actually avoid God's presence, even if we're doing what we consider spiritual things. The goal is to have a relationship where we are actually intimate with God. So this interesting, it's interesting that this idea of being
1: a prophet makes more sense to the average Christian, because what you're basically saying, if I hear you right, is a prophet is one whose position is before the face of God, living in the presence of God, having the the transparent relationship with God. And then everything you do comes out of that positional reality. Mm -hmm. And that's what a prophet actually is, not necessarily a future forecaster, Uh, not always a preacher, but someone whose life flows out of their
0: positional reality of being in the presence of God. Right. So sometimes you hear prophets described as members of the inner council of God. That's a biblical way of looking at things. I think sometimes we take that and extrapolate in ways that are unbiblical, but it's a biblical thing to say a member of the council of God. If by that you mean somebody who is before the face of God, who is tuned into what God is doing, who understands what God's heart is and what his motives are and what he's trying to do in the world. That's that's very prophetic. And you see that with characters in the Bible, Moses, for example, Elijah, for example, mm-hmm. John the Baptist, for example, these are prophets because they are living before the face of God.
1: You know, one of the things that jumps to my mind as a practical application of this, you've read this and, and so have I, and probably a lot of our hearers have too, is Brother Lawrence and the practice of the presence of God. And that whole, uh, his whole letters that he wrote are basically about going about everything in his
0: life, keenly aware that he all the time is in the presence of God. Right. And this is one of the things that's so important about the Old Testament prophets is they're speaking Speaking the word of God God from the presence of God. And that's why they're not intimidated. So you can have Elijah or Moses or Isaiah go and stare down a king because they actually report to a greater king. You know, they they are not afraid of the words of this earthly king because they know the words of the heavenly king. They they know the words of the God of the universe. You know, this explains an interest a story where Elijah kind of falters.
1: And in explaining it in this way makes a lot of sense to me. So obviously he's you know, he speaks to God. God tells him, go confront Ahab. Uh, They gather on Mount Carmel. You know, he has that glorious moment where he speaks the words of God and God sends down fire and confirms, you know, who he is. And all the people say, oh, the Lord, he's God, the Lord, he's God. Okay. So we know that he's, he's being a faithful prophet. He's taken what he's heard from God and he's portraying it. He's speaking truth to power. But afterwards, we also know that Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. And he takes off. He runs. And you know what's interesting to me, Cole? Correct me if I've gotten this wrong. But basically, he runs into the wilderness trying to get away. And the word of God comes to him. And God says, Elijah, what are you doing here? Mm-hmm. And so then he tells him his woes, like, oh, my gosh, she's going to kill me. I'm the only prophet left, et cetera. And God says, "Will you go up to the mountain. So he goes up to the mountain and, you know, we go through the whole thing. We go through the, you know, the earthquake. We go through the wind, et cetera. And then God's still small voice. And you know what God says? Elijah, what are you doing here? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's really interesting because Elijah has fled, if you will, The presence of God. He says, get back into my presence so that you can go
0: do what you're supposed to do. Yeah, he had lost his confidence because he had moved away from where he was supposed to be. He was not in the presence of God. And therefore, even the words of Jezebel now were intimidating to him. He lost his courage because he lost geographically the place that he was supposed to be standing. He had nothing to stand on. And uh, you see this a lot. This this is what happens with Jonah, too. So it says Jonah flees from the presence of the Lord. There's a reason Jonah's heart is not aligned with God's heart in saving the people in Nineveh, because Jonah is not living before the face of God anymore. He is running from the face of God. And so this prophetic theme is pretty consistent through the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. The, The prophetic role that Jesus plays is not only does he come from the presence of God, he is God. He speaks God's word. And he brings people back into the presence of God. I think of 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He might bring us back into the presence of God. And you see this at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, that the promise of Revelation is that God will be there. He will be the God of his people. He will see us face to face. He will write his name on our forehead. And we will be with him forever. That's the promise of Revelation is that's where we're going to end up. We're back to the place that Adam was when he was created face to face with God, breathing in the breath of God and speaking it out again. That's that's what it means to be a prophet, a true prophet. And uh, that's really not something that's just reserved for the charismatics, that's something that everybody should be doing, is living before the presence of God. So to to wrap these archetypes up, this prophet, priest, and king is something that we're all walking in. And we, as fallen prophets, priests, and kings, have things that uh, are temptations for us to take us off track. And then looking at Jesus, the true prophet, priest, and king, we realize we should be expanding the kingdom of God, tending to holy things, living before the presence of God. And that's a way of thinking about how we conform to the image of Christ in our everyday life. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.